Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, and I am thrilled to be bringing you today's episode with Dr. Mark Pimentel. I have been trying to get Dr. Pimentel onto the Healthy Gut Podcast for over a year, and he is the most requested guest I've ever had uh, with you guys wanting him to come onto the show. So I am thrilled to be able to bring this episode to you. Now, Dr. Pimentel and I had planned to spend a nice, relaxed hour with each other, but unfortunately, Los Angeles traffic had other ideas on the day of our recording, so we only had a short 30 minutes with each other. Each other. I had so many questions submitted by you for my interview with Dr. Pimentel and I wish I'd been able to get through all of them but I just simply couldn't in the short amount of time that we had with each other. But I did manage to get through a whole heap of questions. So a huge thanks guys for submitting the questions and taking the time to really think through the questions you wanted Dr. Pimentel to answer for you and for I. Now, in order to get access to the full transcription from today's show, and we cover a lot, so you definitely want to be able to get the transcription and read along, make notes alongside of it, make sure you sign up for free as a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast. It's super easy to do, guys. All you need to do is put your name and email address in. You then become a member of the podcast and you get exclusive access to the full transcription and special offers and promotions. Now, talking about special offers and promotions, Dr. Pimentel has very kindly agreed to come back onto the Healthy Gut Podcast, and we're going to do a special, exclusive live podcast episode when I return to Los Angeles in June. In order to secure an exclusive seat on that live podcast recording All members of the Healthy Gut Podcast will get priority access. So if you would like to be watching Dr. Pimentel and I live, then make sure that you have signed up. And that episode is going to air at 3 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time on the 13th of June or 8 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time on the 14th of June. So guys, like I said, it's free to join. All you need to do is add your name and email address to subscribe to be a Healthy Gut Podcast member. So head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Pimentel to do so. We've also got a fantastic Mother's Day promotion running this week. It's Mother's Day here in Australia on Sunday, and I would love for you to be able either to win the prize yourself or 
to give it to mum. We've got some fantastic gifts in our gift pack. We've got beautiful, delicious pancetta from my friends at Bandara Berkshires. We've got a gorgeous pot of skincare from Ecology Skincare. We've got the delicious Better Me tea that Linda Griperich has uh, very kindly given us. And you can also get a copy of all three of my SIBO cookbooks. And we've got uh, just a wonderful sample pack of Pure Home Body, all of their products, which are low tox and just sensational for cleaning and for around the house and this pack is worth over $200 so it's the most incredible hamper for you to give mum. Now in order to enter this and you can win this whole pack just head to the Healthy Gut Facebook or Instagram pages and you'll see our posts there and you can enter to win. And coming up on next week's podcast, a quick call out before we dive into today's show is we have our first coaching call. Would you like to come on the Healthy Gut podcast and experience what it's like to be part of my coaching program? Well, you can. You can do it absolutely free. You can either submit a question you would like me to answer for you or you can come in and we will have a coaching session together. If you'd like to submit a question, just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Pimentel and you will see a button on the website that says leave a message for the healthy gut. You just click on that and it will start recording. You've got five minutes to leave me a message and it's a great way to uh, leave a message in the convenience of your own time and then you can come onto the show. Uh, Alternatively, if you'd like to come in live, you can send me an email at Rebecca at thehealthygut.co and uh, we will organize a time to organize a recording. So let's get into today's show. Dr. Pimentel really almost needs no introduction. He is a professor of medicine at Geffen School of Medicine and associate professor at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles, California. Dr. Pimentel completed three years of an undergraduate degree in honors microbiology and biochemistry at the University of Manitoba, Canada. This was followed by his medical degree and his Bachelor of Medicine from the University of Manitoba Health Sciences Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, where he also completed a residency in internal medicine. His medical training includes a fellowship in gastro Enterology at the UCLA Affiliated Training Program. Active in research, Dr. Pimentel has served as a principal investigator or co-investigator for numerous basic science, translational and clinical studies in areas such as IBS and the relationship between gut, flora, composition and human disease. His work has been published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Annals of Internal Medicine, American Journal of Physiology, American Journal of Medicine, American Journal of Gastroenterology and Digestive Diseases and Sciences, among others. Dr. Pimentel has been invited to present his work at meetings, grand rounds and advisory boards in the United States and internationally. 
He is Diplomat of the American Board of International Medicine, Gastroenterology, and a Fellow of the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada. Dr. Pimentel is also a member of several medical associations, including the American Gastroenterological Association, the American College of Gastroenterology, and the American Neurogastroenterology and Motility Society. He's been a busy man, obviously, and he's had some pretty significant accomplishments, which have included the discovery of rifaximin as a treatment for irritable bowel syndrome. And he developed the first blood test for IBS on the basis of IBS being derived from acute gastroenteritis. He's described the association between IBS and bacterial overgrowth, which forms the basis for microbiome therapies in this condition. And he discovered the methanogen, M. smithi, as an agent for causing constipation in humans. And finally, he discovered the use of lovastatin as a microbiome treatment for constipation on the basis of inhibiting methane production by methanogens. Like I said, he almost needs no introduction. He is well known in the SIBO and IBS community, and I'm absolutely thrilled to bring today's episode to you where we discuss all things SIBO. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Dr. Mark Pimentel. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. It's great to be with you today. Uh, so my audience are thrilled that you have come onto the show. Uh, you are my number one most requested uh, potential guest. So when I said that I was actually going to meet you, uh, we're here in LA at Cedar sinai they were over the moon. So I know that uh, they'll be listening in absolute uh, large numbers to today's episode. Hopefully they can't see me blushing right now. Now, um, we're going to dive straight in. So my listeners uh, really understand SIBO because they have it themselves. So the questions that I'm going to be asking you today are generally from my audience. And uh, and these are the things that they're they're really interested in knowing your insight and and expertise on. Um, But first, I thought we'd start off with just covering the different treatments options for SIBO, what you use for the different types of SIBO and why? So my research goes back around 20 years. So when we first started looking at treatments for SIBO, our focus, of course, was on antibiotics in that initial phase. Traditional antibiotics worked well in some instances. For example, ciprofloxacin works well. Neomycin worked somewhat well. The problem we were encountering is that resistance would develop very quickly. In fact, in neomycin and most of the other cases, 75% of patients would be resistant. Even if it worked once, it wouldn't work 75% of the time thereafter. So we were looking for an alternative antibiotic approach, and rifaximin was something that came upon us, and we, we realized that this could be the right antibiotic. And sure enough, through many clinical trials and now FDA approval for IBSD, which is essentially uh, uh, SIBO, in a sense, um, we got rifaximin approved in the United States for IBSD, and we now know with further study that resistance is rare or non-existent. It doesn't ruin the microbiome and it has extraordinary effects and repetitive effects, so it can work again and again. So we generally stick with rifaximin here in the U.S., at least in my practice. But there are alternatives. Quite often, people ask, you know. Could I use an antibiotic that is traditionally used for a methane-dominant SIBO case? Uh, What's your views on that? 
So methane is a special animal, so to speak. Uh, it's an archaea, it's not bacteria. When we developed antibiotics or when we tested antibiotics, they were really antibacterial, not anti-archaeal. And so, but there is some cross-reactivity, so some of the antibiotics do work on archaeal species. We soon realized that neomycin, rifaximin by themselves were not sufficient to handle the archaea or specifically the methanogens in your question. But when we combined them in test tubes, we got a greater response, meaning kill rates for the methanogens. And then in, in human studies, we proved that the same way. We did a double-blind study that showed that if you combine the two, you get a superior effect. Now, there are other ways to, to reduce methanogens as well. Um, there's some natural approaches as well if you wanted to cover those. I think it would be great if we could cover them uh, because my listeners do generally cycle through all of the available treatment options. Yeah, so, I mean, there's some uh, small amounts of data on garlic, for example. Allicin has a, an extract of garlic that does have some suppressive effects on methanogens, so there are people using that. <clears throat> I have found, and I think others who use it find that it wears off over time. Uh, and also, with our antibiotic approaches, it doesn't last as long as with conventional SIBO, and the methanogens are tough characters. So we're working very hard to find better ways to, to tackle that because constipation really is the manifestation of the methane, and constipation, the symptom itself, tends to be even more problematic for patients, symptom-wise, quality of life-wise, than sometimes even diarrhea because if you can't go, you're absolutely miserable. And so we really need to have better treatments for there. Talking about constipation, um, I know that amongst the SIBO community, there's often perhaps some confusion that why uh, a constipated person might actually be hydrogen dominant uh, when there's a lot of discussion around SIBO-C and that generally being uh, a methanogen type of bug that's creating that. Why can we be constipated with hydrogen? So it's, um, there's a lot of ways to answer the question or a lot of angles to the question. First of all, if you're severely constipated, let's say, for example, colonic inertia, that's a different beast altogether. That's a patient who has one bowel movement every three weeks or every two weeks. If you have one bowel movement every two weeks because your colon just doesn't function, you're going to get SIBO. And it's going to be hydrogen SIBO because that's what you have. You don't have methane. So if it's a true motility disorder where things are not working, you're going to get SIBO, but it won't be methane. If it's methane present, then methane can be the one that's causing the constipation. And so you have to look for that. But there's a third sort of very subtle part to this, which is when we do PCR in the stool, which means truly quantitate the methanogens in the stool, when it's between 10,000 and a, uh, a million, we can't pick up methane on the breath, but it's constipating. So there's a gray zone in the breath test which misses the methane. So there may be some patients who are very light methane, but you can't pick it up on the breath test. And then, of course, there's all the issues of is your breath test company or where you get your breath test properly calibrated? Are they getting the correct results? And that's a whole other, you know, difficult thing to handle. It is. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> um, many patients, and I hear from people from all around the world that are dealing with SIBO, they're often going on multiple rounds of treatment. Um, they've often been on three, four, five or more rounds of antibiotics, and they're not seeing great improvement. One of the questions is, is it safe to keep going on multiple rounds of antibiotics to treat their SIBO? So I, I don't do that. Um, so if I have a patient where they've gone on a round of antibiotics and they have a brilliant response... But a week or two later, it comes back. 
then the SIBO is being caused by something, something we need to find out, uh, whether it's adhesions, and I know that your listeners are probably very well aware of a lo- the laundry list of things that can cause SIBO, but adhesions are not easy to find. They're not found on CT scan. They're not found on, on a lot of imaging studies, and even a barium study, if it's not done by a very, very old-school, qualified radiologist, won't pick it up. So uh, it's, it's, it's problematic, but what you don't want to end up doing is just keep treating and treating and treating and treating. If you're in that cycle, you need to find out why it's there. The other alternative is, yes, it's SIBO, but it's another disease altogether. Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is an example of this, where you can't, you can't get rid of the SIBO because the motility disorder is is uh, dense and you have to treat it in a different way. Now, you can give suppressive antibiotics, but my point is get to know what is causing it. And if it is Ehlers-Danlos and you do need antibiotics repeatedly, at least you know you have what you have and you're treating it with an open mind rather than an unclear mind of what's going on. Exactly. And it's actually been something that I've experienced myself after initially being diagnosed with SIBO three years ago, then spending a lot of time uncovering my underlying cause or causes and have since discovered I'm full of adhesions, hence the SIBO and, uh, and the more recent relapse with my SIBO. But at least I now know what it is. And I think when I talk to people that contact me, uh, I often say, have you and your practitioner worked through what potential underlying causes could be? If somebody is experiencing uh, recurrent SIBO, um, what's the best way to have that conversation with their practitioner about underlying causes if their practitioner hasn't raised it with them? Well, let, let's go back to underlying causes just for one one moment. What I don't want <clears throat> one of one of the things that I sort of um, preach, if you will, is that a lot of patients with SIBO, a lot of patients with IBS, go through a lot of unnecessary testing. So what I'm not saying is that every person who has SIBO should go through an extensive battery of tests to look for the cause, because in 80% of cases. It's going to be IBS. It's going to be something like that. And if you respond to the antibiotic or whatever therapy you choose, and it's a brilliant response, and you feel great for six months or a year, you don't need to go searching. Uh, It's the patient where it's relapsing. Now, the question is, is your doctor understanding the mechanisms of SIBO and understanding what to look for? And there's a lot of education to be had in that area. But this this is not new. If you go to my bookshelf, you'll see textbooks that, you know, original versions date back to the 50s and 60s, and bacterial overgrowth was in there, and adhesions was a cause. So it's not new information. It's been there for 40, 50 years in the medical textbooks. It's just that they have to go through the proper uh, rote to try and, you know, get to the answer for the patient, and they don't always think that way. Mm. Let's talk about IBS, particularly post-infectious IBS. One of the questions was, is there hope for me as the post-infectious IBS person? I've got a terrible food poisoning incident. Then I ended up with SIBO. What, what does the future look like for, for one of those people? So, you know, we, we developed a blood test to test for post-infectious IBS for a number of reasons. <clears throat> now, the blood test is not worldwide yet, so it's not available perhaps in Australia yet, but uh, it will be. And, and the point I'm trying to make is that the test tells you two things. It tells you you have IBS and that the, these antibodies are a risk factor for SIBO. But the second is that food poisoning causes you to produce antibodies. So if you know that, you need to be very careful when you travel. 
I'm not saying don't travel, but you need to take more precautions than others because if you get it again, the antibodies go higher and higher and higher. The higher they are, the harder to treat the SIBO because the motility is more densely damaged. That's what we saw in our animal work, and that's what we see clinically as well. The higher the anti-vinculin, which is one of these antibodies, the more trouble we have treating them in clinic. Uh, now, you asked for hope. so. I have 16 people in our lab, and they're spending all day, all night, not all night, but most of the day trying to get the answer of how do we get these antibodies out so we can cure it. And we've done that in three patients, and they're cured for a month. Now, I can't tell you how. Not that it's a secret, because I don't want people going out and doing it, because it's a really dramatic thing to do, but it's, it's proof of principle that if we can get the antibodies out of the bloodstream, the IBS goes away, the SIBO goes away. Uh, in the people who have those antibodies. So we're working on that, and you just got to stay tuned. I can't wait. As someone that has had multiple food poisoning incidents almost every time I've traveled, uh, I, I, I will be waiting eagerly. <laughs> well, one thing I will caution also, because if you have those antibodies, your chance of getting food poisoning again is higher than the normal person because of the motility. So you don't need as many toxic bacteria to colonize. Normally you need like, let's say a spoonful, but because the motility is damaged, maybe you need half a spoonful because it can grow in there to make a spoonful. So uh, it, it make, makes you more at risk on top of everything else. So, mm. Yeah, it is. And as someone that has uh, had a, I had a three year break between SIBO incidences and I traveled to Thailand in that time. And uh, I was terrified that I was going to end up sick because I always had previously. But I was very cautious. I took a lot of precautions. My naturopathic physician in Australia and I had a very clear protocol that I would follow. And I came away pretty unscathed. And I was in a major flood incident. So I was really ecstatic that I was able to actually go to a less developed country and, uh, and still have a really good time. So That's that what I say. Travel, enjoy, but there are things you can do to prevent. Yeah. I just had to be sensible. Uh, when a patient's numbers don't drop or they increase um, after a round of treatment, what, what do you, how do you approach that? So again, this is the mystery methane. So methane eats hydrogen. So if you have methane very, very low, but you're constipated, sometimes you take the antibiotics, the methane disappears and the hydrogen goes up. But then there's hydrogen sulfide as well, which we can't measure or we couldn't measure yet. And so um, if it's hydrogen sulfide and you get rid of the hydrogen sulfide, which is eating hydrogen, the hydrogen goes up. So um, we'll be able to measure all of these things very shortly. And I'll have more news in a few weeks. In a few weeks. Wonderful. I know that one of the questions was, what's the update on hydrogen sulfide testing? you got to wait another eight weeks. Oh, no. <laughs> um if a patient gets a negative breath test, but they're still experiencing symptoms, what do you recommend that they should be doing next? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. If a patient gets a negative breath test but they're still experiencing symptoms, what do you recommend that they should be doing next? Well, so a negative breath test could be a flat line, which could be hydrogen sulfide. So we're going to answer that question in the next few weeks, as I mentioned. But um, <clears throat> hopefully testing will be available in, in the coming year or so that will allow people to get recognized as SIBO, but it's hydrogen sulfide. If they have symptoms and it's negative, then of course you've got to look for other things. One of the things we see quite often, for example, in women over the age of 60 is microscopic colitis. So if you have diarrhea, unexplained, <clears throat> perhaps some bloating associated with that, and you think it's SIBO, the breath test is negative, it could be that. And so there are other reasons, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis. So in the setting of a negative breath test, those are the patients I'm more inclined to do more workup in rather than jump to workup. Because in the United States, and it may not be the case in, in Australia, because like Canada, where I'm from, it's socialized medicine. But here, patients pay so much money for testing. One of my patients uh, has been very a very big advocate and continues to state that she spent almost 20,000 US dollars copay for her care, in addition to what the insurance companies were paying for all that investigation. So, you know, <coughs> colonoscopies are not without risk. And I hate to see that all these patients are getting all these negative colonoscopies for no good reason. Um, just, just touching back on methanogens, um, in a presentation that you made in recent times, you talked about how it is potentially more of a bloom and, uh, and potentially large intestine involvement. That triggered a lot of questions amongst the SIBO patient community. If we can just touch on that quickly and, um, and just, uh, you know, if you are able to explain what you mean by a bloom versus an overgrowth Right. So <clears throat> overgrowth in my sort of the way I recognize that definition is that the bacteria have extended beyond their typical location. So like they've invaded another country. So they don't belong in the small bowel. They've overgrown into another location, which is the small bowel. So that's overgrowth. A bloom means that the conventional bacteria in your country, one particular population overgrows the other populations or overgrows what its true representation or balance should be. And that's a bloom. So the reason we now think it's a bloom is because we, we when we were doing stool sequencing, we were seeing that the stool testing for methane or methanogens was proportional to the methane on the breath test. So it wasn't the small bowel in that case. It was a bloom in and amongst the colon bacteria. And how important is it that we are looking at the colon bacteria? Should we be considering the broader microbiome health diversity makeup uh, when we're doing our SIBO treatment? So one of the benefits, in, in our case with rifaximin and IBSD in the United States under that approval, um, is that rifaximin doesn't affect the stool microbiome. It precipitates in the colon. It really only works in the small bowel and maybe the first part of the colon. So you don't need probiotics and you don't, you don't have an effect on the diversity or the type of bacteria that were there from the get-go. 98% uh, of the bugs that were there before treatment were still there after three treatments with rifaximin. That's not the case with a lot of other antibiotics. We have to be mindful of diversity. The problem with, uh, I did a, I'll just digress a little, I did a course, we conduct a course every year and this is our third year on the gut microbiome in the fall. 
And it happened to be that this past fall was the 10th anniversary of the publication of the Nature paper on the human microbiome. So the theme was, 10 years later, where are we? And 10 years later, we're not very far. And the point of that is that we've been able to figure out ways to characterize the microbiome, but we haven't been able to find a bug that says, aha, this is causing diabetes, or aha, this is causing cancer. It hasn't been like that at all. It's actually been somewhat disappointing in that, in that regard. Now, the reason that is because half the stool is dead bacteria that you're amplifying, so they're not doing anything. The other part of the bacteria are inside the stool. What are they doing to you? Nothing. They're inside, right? So it's only the outside. And then there's the mucosa bacteria, which is another framework or another sort of uh, micro ecosystem of bacteria. So maybe they're more important. And so we're just now starting to understand the different sort of ecological areas, even within the colon itself. So my point is we, we have a lot to learn still, and we really don't know what diversity is normal. Look at fecal transplant. We think that's going to be the you know the new nirvana for treating GI diseases, and it really has been for C. diff helpful, but for a lot of other things maybe not so much. So uh, we have to. Your microbiome is not my microbiome per se, uh, and we have to be careful. And there is a lot of discussion around FMTs, uh, prebiotics, probiotics, uh, particularly on some of those big online forums where people read that one person had great success with a particular pre or probiotic and, uh, or FMT and, and now they're desperately off trying to find that. Should we all be considering these uh, um, options for supporting treatment? So it's really important to find common ground when you're suffering, especially if your doctor is not so receptive. And we find common ground on social media. Uh, and, but one of the problems with social media is you'll always find somebody who responds to something. And, and in general, my clinic is the same way. A patient will come to my clinic and say, I don't think I want to do what you're telling me. I want to do a probiotic. I say, okay, which one would you like to do? And so they tell me what they want to do because I don't know that there's a special probiotic for IBS yet. Uh, and they do it and they respond brilliantly. I can't argue with that. And it's an anecdote of one. And then three months later, they come back, it's not working anymore, and then we go back on track. But but what I'm saying is, yes, you can have one-off responses, and who knows what that is. But systematically, in double-blind studies, it hasn't been very effective. And so... And the, the other problem with probiotics, probiotics have gotten far ahead of the science. So if you go to your probiotic section of your nutrition store or your natural food store... There's a hundred or a thousand different types. I can tell you every one of them has not been tested in IBS, but they're purported for digestive health. So what I'm saying is, in summary, I'm not knocking probiotics. I just think we need more data to be more conclusive. And you can end up with a cupboard full of all of these supplements. And, and again, that can be uh, adding to the amount of money that you're spending on your treatment with potentially no benefit. What about things such as... Um, Digestive enzymes, bitters, hydrochloric acid, prokinetics, laxatives. So, uh, long list. Um, so, prokinetics, let's start with that. Prokinetics are very effective at preventing overgrowth from coming back. So, we use different prokinetics in the U.S. We might use low-dose erythromycin. Some people use low-dose naltrexone. Resolor, which I think is available in Australia, is a very effective one if you take it at a low dose at night to prevent uh, uh, bacterial overgrowth relapse. Hydrochloric acid is, is uh, very interesting because methane bugs love acid. And they use acid, which is hydrogen, to make methane. 
So we actually found in a study, if you're on a proton pump inhibitor, which inhibits acid, you're less methane. And if you're on high acid, you're high methane. So you could actually fuel the constipation and the methane if you're in the methane category. So hydrochloric acid may be good in some instances, and alternative or bad in other instances, and you just need to be careful. Digestive enzymes and bitters, I, I think digestive enzymes are uh, can be effective. I reserve them, and I do use them. I reserve them for patients who don't respond traditionally uh, because their effect is modest. So it's not like with rifaximin, you'll get 80 90% improvement. You're not going to get that dramatic an improvement in most cases with the enzymes or the bitters. Let's talk about the diet option. This causes great concern amongst the SIBO folk out there. Um, and one of the things, again, uh, that uh, has um, been discussed in the past by yourself is around um, potentially feeding the bacteria uh, when we're in the midst of treatment in the killing phase versus starving them by, by being on a very low fermentable or, or uh, low FODMAP diet. Can you explain that, uh, that point? Well, so it's an old microbiology principle that healthy, happy, fed, growing bacteria die when they're given antibiotics better than starved, you know, sporulated, they shell themselves off, they're protecting themselves, and then the antibiotic can't get in. Um, so the notion of if you're on a very, uh, like a low fermentation diet, which is sort of an extreme end of starving the bacteria, they will be walled off, and there's at least a theoretical possibility that getting rid of them or treating them with an antibiotic would be less successful. Have I done this in double-blind studies to prove this? No. But it's a, it's this principle has been around for 80 years, and so we, we rest on that principle, but, but we don't know in clinical practice whether that's true or not. What about the patient that is just having extreme symptoms? They're reacting to everything. They're feeling absolutely miserable, uh, and they're perhaps, they perhaps do better if they're able to pull back on the kind of fermentation of the food that they're eating. Um, is that going to hinder the success of their antibiotic treatment? So um, if you're symptomatic, so this is what I tell patients, if you're symptomatic in what you're doing currently, the bacteria must be happy. And happy bacteria don't like antibiotics. So I don't change their diet. I don't ask them to, for example, do guar gum. Some, peop some people suggest to do something to fuel them, like a prebiotic, get them all flourishing. I don't do anything like that. Because if they're symptomatic, it means they're flourishing. So then I say, go ahead and take treatment. Uh, what I don't want to do is that if they're, let's say, on a low FODMAP diet and they've gotten about a 60% response and then they want to add an antibiotic, I think the success will be diminished. Um, so that's how I approach it. Mm, okay, it's interesting. Should we ever be at a point where we are starving our bacteria? So, you know, it goes back to the whole paleo concept, which, and I'm using the word paleo in a slightly different way than the paleo diet, but... Uh, as humans, we evolved where we killed a buffalo, we ate the buffalo, and we didn't have a refrigerator, we didn't have potato chips, we didn't have a 7-Eleven or candies on a bowl in our desks. And so we, uh, we ate when the buffalo was killed, and then we didn't eat for two or three days. So it was a sort of feast and famine approach. And your digestive tract evolved that way. So it needed the cleaning times. You ate a lot, and then you didn't eat for a few days. And that's how it worked. Now we eat all day, all night, or at any opportunity, snacking, noshing, and, and all of that. And so that, that leads to no time for cleaning waves of the gut. And the cleaning waves, even in normal people, if they're suppressed, you can get some degree of overgrowth. 
Um, so that's my approach is that you need some degree of starvation. The question is what diet? Uh, how do you approach this? Uh, it's a little controversial to say anything bad about the FODMAP, which is from Australia. Um, but the low FODMAP diet is extremely a successful diet. Uh, it has worked in double-blind studies. Um, the problems we're starting to see emerge with the low FODMAP diet is nutritional issues. You cannot stay on it long term. You have to start to reintroduce or otherwise you start to get nutritional deficiencies. Bill Chafe from Michigan showed that recently. And then the diversity of the microbiome does get badly affected. And that's a new study that just came out that the microbial diversity is adversely affected by long-term low FODMAP. So reintroduction is critical and you have to be able to do that and know how to do that. And maybe reading off the internet isn't sufficient. Maybe you need a dietitian. Mm. I often uh, um, suggest to people that working with a dietitian or nutritionist that is, is experienced in SIBO can be a really great uh, component of your treatment and, and one important person in your kind of medical team. What does the future hold for us, us SIBOers? What's it looking like? Well, as I say, we're, you know, I'm... I know there's many people around the world working on this. Unfortunately, not as many as there should be, considering how many people suffer from these disorders. Um, but I can tell you from our team's approach, we're setting our sights on things that will cure the root causes, uh, on the antibodies. We're looking at things that will remedy specific patterns or, or uh, types of organisms, let's say the methanogens. We, we've, we're in process of developing a drug, which already went through phase two trials at the FDA on a non-absorbed lovastatin that blocks methane synthesis in those bugs. No methane, no constipation. Uh, and it's novel things like that that are coming down the pipeline that I think it should leave everybody optimistic. The problem with optimism, <coughs> optimism in, me in medicine is measured in years, not in months or weeks, and patients, you know, are suffering. So we can only do it in the time that it takes. It's, there's no way to shortcut, so... And it can feel like an eternity when you're feeling absolutely miserable. Um, what do you, what advice do you have for patients um, who are told by their practitioner or they've read on a blog? There's a blog doing around the rounds at the moment that says SIBO does not exist. Um, how do we handle those people that say this is just made up illness? Um, I, I'm. It's shocking to hear those kinds of things because when you think about Rifaximin, for example, published in the New England Journal of Medicine as a treatment for IBS as a microbiome disease, um, and you see the FDA approving a drug that's treating a microbiome-based cause of IBS, you see multiple randomized control trials in SIBO, in methane, in, in breath testing, you see FODMAP studies looking at the response in the breath test as a result of the low FODMAP diet. I'd like to see the double-blind studies that show that it's not working because I haven't seen one or I haven't seen many that are, are you know, broadly powered, correctly powered. So I'm happy to entertain controversy with data, mm. always. Uh, look, I'm not, I don't have all the answers. I think we'd be arrogant to think that everything we do is right or going to be right. Uh, but I have my mantra, because in the beginning it was very hard for us because we were suggesting IBS was a bacterial disease. Meanwhile, people were thinking as stress or anxiety. We had to change, but you don't change by standing on a podium yelling that this is wrong. What, how you change things is you go to the lab, do the research, prove it's wrong over and over and over, or in my case, prove it's right over and over and over until 
because I have to convince myself before I can convince somebody else. And that's how you really should practice science because it's not, it's not evangelism, it's publications and data. And my final question is, given that uh, SIBO relapse or recurrence is so high amongst the, the community, do you have any advice or practical tips to people on how they can best try and prevent a relapse from occurring? So if you've done brilliantly, as I've mentioned, then the easiest way to prevent a relapse is to try and stay on a, on a diet that restricts calories to the bacteria. We use what's called the low fermentation diet. You can do the low FODMAP or modifications to the low FODMAP so it's not as restrictive. Uh, and that helps. That helps reduce the recurrence. I would say because what we saw with Rifaximin, that 30% of people never relapse, the dogma has slightly changed in the U.S. in that we wait till the, re- till the relapse. So we know how long. So if they relapse in six or eight months, they don't need prevention because why would you take a drug every day for something that's going to happen in six months? And then if you just took Rifaximin twice or one and a half times a year, who cares? I mean, it's it's working well enough. What I don't want is for people, because a lot of these patients are young women and in their um, fertile years, so they're, they're, they could be pregnant. I don't want them taking drugs every day if they become pregnant on a medication and, and even naturals, I think. I think you need to be cautious. So basically what I'm saying is if we can get away with without drugs and just diet after an initial good response, that's what I shoot for. My relapse took three years to come and uh, and I'm really happy with the three years I had between. And I feel fantastic these days even though my SIBO is back. So just because SIBO is back doesn't mean life has ended. And it doesn't have to be as bad as it was. And it definitely for me isn't as bad as it was. Dr. Mark Pimentel, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to meet you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Mark Pimentel. And like I said, we have got an exclusive live interview coming up with him in June. So do make sure you are a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast so that you get priority access to that recording. Just head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Pimentel to not only sign up to be a member of the Healthy Gut Podcast, where you will also get a free transcript of today's episode, priority access for the live recording of Dr. Mark Pimentel and I in June, and you'll also get access to all of the show notes. Now, guys, I love seeing your ratings and reviews. Make sure you leave them for us, and it also helps others to know this is the right podcast for them. BLN 2018 writes, this podcast is extremely informative and the information is backed up by what looks to be very solid research and high quality clinicians. This podcast has answered so many questions that numerous top experts have been unable to answer for me for over 10 years. Thank you, Rebecca, for presenting such useful information in such an easy to understand way. I really appreciate it. This podcast has had a huge physical and emotional impact 
on my life. I'm so glad to hear that. And if you are feeling the same way as BLN 2018, make sure you do leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or whatever app you use to listen to the show. And come say hi to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're everywhere and we absolutely love connecting with you. Now, coming up on next week's show is our first coaching call and we'll be talking about the first key pillar in the five key pillars to health, which is awareness. If you would love to get a free coaching call with me and to come onto the Healthy Gut Podcast, then all you need to do is apply to be on the show. You can do that by leaving a voice message, which is absolutely free to do. Simply head to thehealthygut.co forward slash Pimentel. Click on leave a message for the Healthy Gut Podcast. It will record a voicemail message and you can do that any time of the day or night and it's absolutely free to do so. Alternatively, feel free to drop me an email at Rebecca at thehealthygut.co and I hope to see you on the show next week. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.